Hello and welcome to Very British Futures, a podcast discussing science fiction television. Today we're returning to the 1960s and examining what remains probably the BBC's most ambitious attempt at adapting literary science fiction, Out of the Unknown. Running for four seasons between 1965 and 1971, this anthology was a mixture of original teleplays and adaptations of short stories from the golden age of science fiction, which is said to lie roughly between 1938 and 1960. Helping me to explore the unknown are two guests who are both admirers of the series. Steve Hatcher is a retired teacher of modern foreign languages who's been running the Darby Hoover's Doctor Who group for 20 years this autumn and is the director of the well-loved Hooverville Conventions since they started in 2009. He's written short stories for Big Finish and any number of fan publications, including Cosmic Mask for the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, for which he is fiction editor. Dylan Rees is a line producer in the film and television industry. He's written articles for various publications and is the author of Downtime, the Lost Years of Doctor Who, and a forthcoming TELUS book on real-time pictures. He's also the host of the podcast Doctor Who, Too Hot for TV. So, hello and welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having us. Hi, Dylan. Good to see you. Out of the Unknown was the brainchild of the legendary television producer Irene Schubick. Amongst her achievements were the Wednesday play, Play for Today, and Rumpole of the Bailey. More specifically, for this podcast's interest, she'd already created the ITV science fiction anthology Out of This World, hosted by Boris Karloff. A keen reader of science fiction herself, she persuaded Sidney Newman that there was an appetite for intelligent, adult-orientated, speculative drama that was not being served by television. Schubert worked as producer and story editor on the first two seasons with George Spenton Foster, another science fiction fan, acting as associate producer. Alan Bromley and Roger Parks took over for the third season and steered the series into a more supernatural vein for its fourth and final season. The series was broadcast on BBC Two and achieved respectable ratings for most of its run. Between 1965 and 1971, there were 49 episodes, 25 in black and white and 24 in colour. Unfortunately, only 20 and a half episodes remain due to the BBC's policy of wiping and reusing videotape. Famous authors adapted included Isaac Asimov, Clifford D. Simak, John Wyndham, Ray Bradbury and J.G. Ballard. The BFI released a DVD box set in 2014 containing all the existing episodes, along with remaining clips and telesnap reconstructions of four missing stories. It also featured a very informative booklet by Mark Ward, which has provided invaluable information for today's episode. Today we're going to be taking a critical look back at the programme and trying to find out what made it a success. As part of that we've each chosen a key episode to talk about. But to begin with I'd like to ask you both uh, how you first discovered the show. If you, would you like to start Dylan? 
So I actually came to this reasonably late. I had seen a handful of episodes and I watched them and I enjoyed them like reasonably so, but I don't think it really struck out to me, stuck out to me as anything important or like that nothing really grabbed me. So it was only when the DVD release came out in 2014 that I got to see everything that was available. And I just kind of fell in love with it. Like to me, it's almost, it's the last kind of great cult TV series that I felt I hadn't seen that was like, a, this is something I'm really enjoying and like that, that really stood out. You know, there were certain key ones that stuck out to me, like Adam Adamant, obviously Doctor Who, Blake Seven, things like that. That, and the Avengers that really got me from the get-go. But this was the last. I've certainly seen a lot more, uh, got a lot more DVDs and stuff since then. But this was the last one that I was really like, wow, what a what an amazing series. Uh, yourself, yourself, Steve. Similar story. I mean, although I'm old enough to have to have watched uh, the, the the last couple of series of this i didn't uh I, I think it's it's important to remember when we talk about out of the unknown that it was shown on bbc2 and although we know bbc2 started in 1964 uh, those of us who were around at the time uh, will, will remember that not everybody had bbc2 uh, we didn't have it until 1972 it having started in in 64 because first of all you had to live in the right part of the country you had to be either in, within reach of the crystal palace or the Sutton Coalfield transmitters, which we were, as it happens. Uh, but then you also had to invest in the new technology of the 625 line receiver and the new aerial and all that sort of business. And until you did that, you couldn't get BBC Two. So very much later on that we got that. Um, I, I would have been around about eight when it started, that sort of age. Um, uh, so by the time it finished, I was I was 13 thereabouts. So I, I could have seen it, but didn't. So similar story to Dylan, that I first saw it in, uh, first saw it in the early uh, noughties. I, I was never brave enough to try and stream torrents because I never, I never trusted what I was going to be putting down onto my computer or who was going to be able to see what I was doing, uh, being a a worry about that sort of thing but but somebody will have sent me copies I, I very clearly remember the copies that were sent to me with the little ident from the uh, uh, film and videotape library across the bottom there and and almost unwatchable copies of of things like no place like earth which actually no place like earth isn't much more watchable now but <laughs> it it, uh, it it was very very difficult to make out what was going on but that the, the 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 DVD set uh, is extraordinary. It's a beautiful, beautiful set, and and the, the episodes look wonderful, and the reconstructions are fantastic, and it, it's no surprise when you find out that the people who worked on it and who made it look wonderful are exactly the same people the restoration team who worked on the doctor who ones uh, you've got uh, toby haydock moderating the commentaries you've you, you've got uh, the people behind the loose cannon um reconstructions doing the reconstructions mm -hmm. so really really skilled people who who love the series who've made a fantastic job of it and it's it's an essential it really is it's I, Dylan's entirely right. It's with those. It's in that pantheon of those great science fiction series. In fact, I'd probably go a little bit further than that, and I'd say that there is probably only Quatermass and Doctor Who that are anywhere near as important and influential and damn good as as Out of the Unknown. I completely agree. It, it is just it is like classic science fiction, and obviously these are tales that we are used to have been told many times. Um, over the preceding decades 
but you, a lot of these you're seeing realized um, and a lot of the tropes and the ideas you're seeing realized on tv for the first time yes. and it feels groundbreaking yes well science fiction began for me with uh but there were all sorts of complicating factors why i didn't see much doctor who in the 60s science fiction really started for me with asimov uh, I, I remember mm. one sunday afternoon in 1973 i'd had a particularly lazy sunday morning and i was i was getting washed and dressed at about uh, half past two in the afternoon or something like that and i put radio four on and the bbc radio adaptation of the foundation trilogy was on uh, which is also really worth seeking out uh, <laughs> it, it, and that was wonderful and that grabbed me immediately and I bought the books uh, bought the foundation trilogy bought the robot books bought as much Asimov as I could possibly devour I would have been 14 going on 15 at the time uh, and then but but it's it's there's very little Asimov has ever been adapted into a visual medium uh, mm. There's the the Will Smith film of I Robot, which is absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Asimov beyond the title, and it's got robots in it. Um, <laughs> there's there's a the, the last couple of years that the, there's there's been talk of a, a TV version of the Foundation trilogy happening. I think it's very difficult to do so. The thing about Asimov, I think he actually lends himself very well, particularly to early television, because a lot of his stories are basically people in rooms talking. Yes. A, he's, uh, which is ideal for radio and television. It's in, in a lot of Asimov stories, it's the ideas, it's those things like the laws of robotics yes. or yes. some kind of experiment or a, a particular idea, and people just kind of talk their way through it. Well, he's, actually... he's right at the roots of this series, isn't he? Because you mentioned mm. uh, Out of This World, which was the, the ABC series that, uh, mm. that Newman and, and Schubert worked on. Uh, before they came to the BBC, which was the prototype for Out of the Unknown. And, well, sadly, uh, only one episode of that survives. Locally, the only one episode that survives is Little Lost Robot by Isaac Asimov, and it's absolutely fantastic. There's also been released mm. on, on, um, on, on DVD. And then when they came to the BBC, again, the dry run for Out of the Unknown was uh, a series called Story Parade, which was non-genre uh, adaptations of literary works that Irene Schubert was was uh, was a story editor of, uh, and they did uh, Asimov's The Caves of Steel uh, as a as a practice run for for Out of the Unknown to see how it goes, and sadly doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> Peter Cushing playing playing um, wow. uh, uh, playing uh, the, the lead character whose name has just escaped me. It's not Daniel, it's the other one. Um, the detective. Elijah Bailey plays uh, the detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter Cushing. The big mystery is, did Peter Cushing have to do a, a, an American accent for that? Because although he's mm. there on one of the surviving clips, he doesn't say anything. <laughs> so, but we have got some very brief clips the only criticism i would have of the out of the out of the unknown dvd set is it didn't include those story parade clips which would have been mm. nice it's interesting what you say about uh, asimov not having many adaptations kind of having a quick look through out of the unknown obviously as i said before a lot of these ideas and concepts and themes get reused in science fiction all the time but i was surprised how few of especially some of the tentpole episodes that hadn't been adapted into mm. like some of them are primed for big budget yeah. feature film remakes yeah. you know whether they destroy the source material who knows but you know like some of the ideas and some of the stories i'm like 
who owns the rights to this? Somebody should, mm. be, should be remaking these now. Well, Asimov was apparently quite tricky to, uh, I mean, he wasn't uh, tricky himself to deal with it. Irene Schubert made a, see, I'm saying Irene, you're saying Irene. Um, Nobody seems to know. I'm Uh, saying Schubert. Fine. (laughs) Even people who worked with her seem to differ as to whether they say Irene or Irene. Um, She was of Russian parentage, so it's probably Irena, but never mind. (laughs) She made, her concept of of both of those two series, Out out of This World and This, was that the most important thing would be to adapt uh, literary works of science fiction. So she took herself over to America. She met the agents. She met the authors. She struck up a friendship with Isaac Asimov and and negotiated face-to-face with them. Um, Asimov uh, insisted that there be a particular clause in his contract with her that the episodes not be allowed to be shown outside the UK without getting in touch with him first and getting special permission. Ray Bradbury had another special clause, which said that if any of his episodes are ever repeated, he cops another thousand pounds. So oddly enough, his episodes have never been repeated and Asimov's episodes were never shown outside the UK. Do we know if Asimov ever saw them? Because I know he used to write to her and said he didn't to see the show, but I I don't know whether the episodes were ever seen we know she, she sent him photographs of um, of the dead past, right? Uh, and and his response to that was, "This makes me even more desperate to actually see the episode." Yeah, uh, I don't know. I suspect possibly not. Mm. And he was paid one hundred and seventy five pounds for the rights for each of those stories, mm. which is a, a right bargain. Yeah, mm. but as Absolutely. as was the pattern, the adapter got paid approximately two and a bit times that in each case. <laughs> so, the, which is fair enough. The person who was actually yeah. doing the work on the on the TV episode. Yeah, that makes sense. It is. I think that's one of the great things about Out of the Unknown is that he went to the source material yes. of of the his actual science fiction stories. I would absolutely love more series to do that. I think, unfortunately, there's a tendency with a lot of science fiction. Uh, you people seem to look elsewhere or mm. they're not going to the original they're going to these days they go to the films mm. that were based on so we're getting that second generation effect or worse that they, they adapt westerns into science fiction stories it's never been done since this is this is the only attempt to do serious literary science fiction a uh, anthology series for television, uh, in the UK at least. Mm. Uh, it's, it's never been done since. And there was certainly, in the, those first few series, there was only a handful of kind of original stories yeah. that weren't adaptations. Obviously, yeah. when you get to the last series, I think nearly all of them are. But, yeah, uh, that, well, that was a deliberate policy, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, you, you spoke, Gareth, about uh, Alan Bromley and, uh, and uh, what's his R- name? Roger Parks. Roger Parks taking over for Series 3, which is absolutely true. But the that series had already been planned, the stories were commissioned. That is very much an Irene Shubik series mm. that, uh, that Bromley and Parks made, which is fair enough. They were only able to, to bring in their vision for the series, for series four. My view is it's an entirely different series. It's, it's, it it's out of the unknown in name only. And mm. although it has its merits, it's not the same animal at all. Yeah, it kind of mm. it feels more like Brian Clemens' thriller or something exactly. like that, exactly. which which I like, but I just yeah. I don't want and you know some of the stuff is great, but I just don't want that from Out of the Unknown. 
it doesn't stand mm. out as being different, does it? I mean, you, you, it does. Like you say, it feels much of there's there's a lot of other anthology shows yeah. that are quite similar to mystery and imagination, yeah. uh, mm. late night horror, and then later on Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense, things like. In fact, it's it's very noticeable that it's telling that two of the episodes from season four were then adapted uh, as episodes of Hammer House of Mystery and Imagination. Mm, that, wow. that, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's two episodes. I've written them down. Oh, yes. The, 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 the Last Witness uh, became the Hammer House episode, A Distant Scream. And The Uninvited became the Hammer House episode, In Possession. That's, that season four is real. Like, there's this thing of, like, the 60s series feels like a mix of kind of the hope of the space race and kind of post-war dystopia. And it yeah. feels very much about possibilities that the future holds, the advancements of technology, be that a good thing or a bad thing. And that's obviously a lot to do with the source material. Mm. While in the 70s, it's very much this zeitgeist, the zeitgeist of psychological um, horror. It's this, the cynical failure of flower yes. power, the flower power movement. It's about mm. down-to-earth science. And it's about yeah. industry and the present day. And it's, I guess, also nearer Doom Watch than Doctor Who. So yes. And you've got things, as you say, the zeitgeist. You've got Rosemary's Baby mm. and Repulsion and uh, the Dennis Wheatley, the Hammer doing the Dennis Wheatley uh, adaptations and so on. It fed into all that. It became the thing to do. And then you, you, you've got the, um, the, uh, the, the, the folk horror uh, films yeah. starting around the, mm-hmm. the turn of the decade, haven't you? The, the great folk horror films, which are absolutely great in their own right, but yeah. not necessarily what I want to see from, from, from uh, Out of the Unknown. That's it. it is, I mean, when he was promoting the fourth series, Alan Bronner was interviewed in the Radio Times. Uh, he, to me, this rather spurious argument, actually I've heard from a few people around this time, that now once man had landed on the moon, in 1969, in a way, oh, that's it. We're, we're now living in yes. the future and nobody's bothered about it. End of history. So. Mm, that's it. And there was, a, a, apart from the change of emphasis, there are a couple of episodes in that fourth series which are just downright nasty. And, mm. and you wouldn't make them these days. Um, there's the episode To Lay a Ghost, yeah. mm. which is a fabulous little ghost story other than it's overlaid with this rape thing. That the, mm. the victim has, has, has been raped as a child and, and is desperate, basically, to have that happen again by the, by the end of it. And, and, and then there's Death Day, yeah. written by mm. the great Michael J. Bird, where the protagonist murders his wife right at the beginning after she's been teasing him about his, uh, his impotence. And, uh, and, and, and is then consumed by his own guilt. And there's the scene in that where the wife is begging the husband, come on, rape me, rape me. Yeah. And mm. it's nasty. It's horrible. And I, I, don't, I don't want to see that, to be honest. But... No, it, it all feels very much like these, these are now authors and writers kind of trying to make controversial TV in a way and kind of, kind yeah. of see how edgy they can get and how far yeah. they can take it. And, yeah. you know... Mm. There you are. I'm tuned in for uh, some more traditional science fiction, still pushing yes. boundaries in other ways. That's not to say there aren't controversies to be had in some of the earlier episodes, but it just seems to be controversy for the sake of controversy rather than storytelling. 
But then also mm. in that in that last series, you've got one of the great missing Nigel Neals. You've got yeah, the chopper. Mm. I say the great missing Nigel Neals, having read the script and which I've again got a copy off of somebody many years ago, and reread the description in the in in um, uh, in uh, Mark Ward's fantastic book about Out of the Unknown. Uh, mm. I don't necessarily know it would have been a great uh, no. uh, Nigel Neal, but then it did have Patrick Troughton mm. uh, and a haunted motorbike, so what's not to love? <laughs> oh, it, it, it doesn't, from reading the synopsis, it doesn't come across like something like The Road, where you're like, oh, God, it, why it really does not does exist? It, it really it, doesn't. It feels like someone's asked Nigel Neal for a script and he's had this idea and he's just kind of, you know, churned it out, mm. possibly. Yep. And, and we mentioned, I mentioned another one. Uh, I mentioned rather folk horror. Well, there's a couple of episodes in that season four, which would have been absolutely in that genre. There's, there's, there's one that I would love to see come back called The Sons and Daughters of Tomorrow, right. which mm-hmm. is, is one of these of a, a little village which bas- where basically everybody's a witch, which again is, is, is a, a theme that we've seen played out in many, many other things from The Wicker Man to The Witches uh, 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 onwards. But uh, it sounds as if that one would be quite fun, actually. Um, mm. in the folk horror genre but they're not out of the unknown <laughs> <laughs> I'd want to see them as an episode of something else mm. yes I think, I think we'd think a lot better about season four yeah say, if it was called something else yes, yes. Was, uh... we, we, we seem to have jumped forward to season four we have we but, have uh, which, which is obviously the most controversial season but I guess um, can, can we run it back from the beginning and talk about some favourites from there I don't know what you think Yes, you should pull back. I think before we go into our particular episodes, I, I think we're trying to find what made the tone of this show, what what made it fairly unique in, in the BBC series. Uh, I mean, it's impressive, the amount of variety in the shows. I mean, there's often a tendency with anthology shows to go for the, the twist in the tail type of format. Mm. And I think it's impressive that relatively few of these are that kind of story. Well, there's a, there's a variety of different kinds of stories. There's some, there's, some are quite satirical. Others are quite sort of uh, menacing and atmospheric. And, uh, and some are very purely science and quite sort of, sort of things like sucker bait, for example. Yes, yes. It's very much, here's a scientific concept that we are going to extrapolate into a, a drama of some kind. There's out and out comedies, as you say. There's yeah. satire. There's out and out comedies, and the, it's a show that takes that. It's a serious show, but it doesn't mm-hmm. take itself over seriously. It is even in the serious episodes. There's there's usually a good vein of comedy there. There's the, the things to laugh at. Obviously not season four, but uh, <laughs> there are things to find. You know, there's not much to find funny in Death Day. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, mentioned sucker uh, sucker bait. Um, come buttercup, come daisy as well with the uh, the sort of little shop of horrors yeah. uh, type concept of that is is another lovely one and uh the one with uh, graham stark oh the midas plague the midas plague yes, that's course. it the midas plague uh which again is I'd, I'd remembered hating that one and when i watched mm-hmm. it again this time i actually really enjoyed it because it was quite fun mm. I, I think there's I, I do think the comedy episodes work but i do think they're the elements that perhaps date the most badly in terms mm. of like the science fiction side of things always kind of stands the test of time or mostly but i do find like the humor is enjoyable but definitely outdated so those comedy episodes are a little bit more of their time but, 
but but what I, I I think the thing that sticks out for me in those first three seasons, especially, is like the the people making it are taking it very seriously, and there is always that tendency with science fiction that people at that, at that time, at least, um, didn't take it seriously, and you do get throwaway mm. programs and things like that. But it's the the special effects work for the era is really good. The director the directors take the like do a really good job, and there's like wonderful moments of kind of directorial flair that perhaps go back to Doctor Who it feels like even the same directors that have done Doctor Who are taking more care over this because this is an adult's program as opposed to a kid's program and you know I can't I think the budget Mm. for each episode was about five grand but Mm -hmm. I can't remember is Doctor Who was it about three grand or something like that or was it similar to this but but certainly the production values feel two and six months on a Murray Mint (laughs) 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 <laughs> and William Hartnell had that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's time to sort of like look a little bit deeper into a particular show. So, um, whilst uh, we were, I was planning this podcast. I asked uh, Steve and Dylan to both choose an episode they particularly wanted to talk about, and uh, Steve chose an Isaac Asimov episode. I'm glad I've, I, I have a feeling if nobody else picked an Isaac Asimov episode, I was going to pick one of them. So I'm glad you have. So what attracted you to the dead past? What attracted you to uh, Millionaire? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, you've given the answer already. It's Isaac Asimov, isn't it? It's, uh, I, I was going to pick an Asimov episode. Come what may. We're talking, Asimov, as we said, did six he didn't do them. Uh, contributed six stories that were adapted for Out of the Unknown. Uh, two in each of the first three years. Now, sadly, we've only got two of those left. Uh, we've got Sucker Bait and we've got uh, The Dead Past. Um, I, I'm entirely sure that my favourite episode... Well, my favourite episode isn't The Dead Past. I think both of the stories that you two have chosen uh, are probably better episodes than The Dead Past. But Asimov, as a as a writer, uh, as a as my gateway drug into science fiction, uh, means a lot to me. Um, and it's a perfectly interesting and serviceable Asimov story. Uh, it's sadly, it's not one of the the robot stories because the the, the robot stories uh, again do tend to crop up in Out of the Unknown and to be brilliant. Um, I'd love to see Liar and I'd love to see The Naked Son. But anyway, we can talk about that in a bit, perhaps. So the prologue, the prologue uh, starts with a, a sequence where, no, listen, where uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Caroline Potterly, who is played by Sylvia Seeds of Do- uh, Doom Coleridge, uh, is... Uh, is dreaming and she's dreaming of fire and a, and a child being killed in fire and she wakes up. Now it turns out that she and her husband Arnold Potterly are an elderly couple. He is an ac- academic, a historian, and uh, she's being disturbed by these horrific dreams of a child being burned alive and the image of a pagan god. Well, anyway, it turns out that the reason for that, that the Potterly's own daughter had died in a fire. Now, the story gets going and we see Potterly. What a great name, Potterly. And he goes off to see another great name, the director of the university where he works, Thaddeus Araman, who is <laughs> David Upstairs, Downstairs, Langton. Uh, and, and he asks for permission to use a chronoscope. Now, the chronoscope is the big invention of the story. It's, uh, it's, it's basically Doctor Who's time-space visualizer. You can tune it in not to watch the Beatles doing uh, Ticket to Ride, but you can, you can see any scene from history, allegedly. 
Uh, so he wants to use one because that would be quite useful for a historian, wouldn't it, to be able to do that. You can't travel into time, but you can view it, allegedly. So he goes to see uh, Richard Bellamy, uh, sorry, uh, Thaddeus Araman, uh, David Langton, and says, can I use your chronoscope then to, to see Carthage? Because I'm studying Carthage and I particularly want to see if they used to burn children as a sacrifice. OK, uh, and uh, so anyway, Thaddeus Araman says, no, you can't, mate, on your bike. Uh, we don't allow people just to willy nilly use chronoscopes. Uh, and by the way, don't think of going, don't under any circumstances think of going to the physics department and seeing if they'll make one for you, because that would be intellectual anarchy and you'll be in trouble for that. So that must be the last thing you do. So the last thing he does is he goes off to the physics department and approaches a young physicist called Jonas Foster, who is James Underworld Maxwell, uh, not just Doctor Who Underworld, but every ITC show, The Avengers, and uh, basically every British drama of the late 60s and, and early to mid 70s, James Maxwell, great actor. Uh, and he's a young physicist and uh, potterly persuades him to build a chronoscope. And at first he's very reluctant, but he, he, he really gets in on the project and thinks it's a good plan. Now then, he goes off to visit his uncle. And now his uncle is a science journalist called Ralph Nimmo. No relation to Derek, I feel sure. And, and he's the rather fabulous Willoughby Goddard. Who, whose perhaps two most famous performances have been uh, enjoying runs on Talking Pictures TV recently uh, as Gessler in William Tell, the evil uh, Landberger, and also as uh, Mr. J.G. Reader's boss in the mind of Mr. J.G. Reader. So Willoughby Goddard, massive big fella. And Willoughby Goddard just ahead of filming this had got some horrible eye infection so he's wearing an eye patch as well which is just tremendous so anyway Ralph Nimmo agrees to find out all he can about neutrinics which is the science behind the chronoscope and about which nothing has been published in the last 30 years and it may be all a fake it may be all nonsense or it may be a might be a government plot to suppress the whole thing Okay, well, now, while all this is happening, all these conversations between these various people, nobody knows that uh, Richard Bellamy off upstairs, downstairs, Araman is surreptitiously observing everything that's going on. He's monitoring every move. Foster really gets keen on the project and he builds a chronoscope in Potterley's basement, as you do. Uh, but in doing so, he discovers it can only see 125 years into the past. So uh, Carthage is right out despite government's claims that they can see anything they want. No, it's not going to happen. Meanwhile, Mrs. Potterly, uh, Sylvia Coleridge, is getting obsessed with the idea that with this machine, she'll be able to see her dead daughter in an undead state, her daughter Laurel. Now, Potterly, when he realises what's going through her mind, he goes, oh, wait a minute, that could be quite nasty. Uh, Potterly, by the way, played uh, by an actor called George Benson, who's not the American singer of, uh, of, of 30 years ago, but has a striking resemblance to A.J.P. Taylor, the TV historian of the time. So anyway, there we go. Um, so Potterly sees the danger in this and smashes the machine and orders Foster to leave. Uh, and in the, the fallout after that, it transpires that he was actually at fault for causing the fire that killed his daughter because he left a cigarette floating about somewhere and set fire to the place. That, isn't it extraordinary in all these things? 
this is set in the future at some point. Yet everybody's there smoking. They got that wrong, didn't they? Because, of course, hardly anyone does these days. But uh, mm. it's the most natural thing. Ever. There's a lot of All smoking the throughout the series. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. In the far distant future. Yeah. Uh, well, perhaps <laughs> they've made it safe or something. I don't know. <laughs> safe it's striking. I, I was seeing something set in the future a couple of nights ago, and yep. somebody uses a payphone. <laughs> yeah. What's that about? <laughs> Well, Foster, anyway, decided that he's going to press on and make the machine again and, and publish his results, more to the point. He's going to let people know what he's discovered. Potterly sees all the dangers about this. So he goes off to upstairs, downstairs and says, look, this is what we've been doing and it's not good. And uh, we're really sorry. And so uh, Nimmo and Foster are both arrested and brought in. And Araman explains why the government has suppressed the chronoscope. And it's not been a horrible big government conspiracy for horrible uh, reasons and so on. It's basically because if you've got a, a machine that can see into history, the history starts that long ago, a second ago. So basically, it means you can observe anybody doing anything at any time. And it's the end of all privacy. So Foster... Uh, James Maxwell uh, agrees that he won't publish after all. Now, it'd be a bad idea. I see what you're talking about. Nice, helpful, benevolent government. I'll, I'll stop what I'm doing and I never, ever think about this again. But it's all too late because Willoughby Goddard has already arranged for the pamphlets and things to be published. There, All the details are about to go into the world and, and the chronoscope is going to be released upon unsuspecting uh, public. And the episode ends, uh, presumably some point in the near future after the story, with Caroline Potterly Silver Coleridge uh, basically raving mad, watching over and over again a clip of her dead daughter playing in a park. And that's all very sad at the end. So that's that. That's the story. Uh, it makes you think it's a th it's it's uh it, it's it's a bit of a nonsense isn't it because uh, the, the 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 time space visualizer chronoscope thing seems a bit unrealistic but if it did happen this was asimov's great thing if such and such a thing was what would be the results of it and mm -hmm. perhaps all the great science fiction is like that it is it's a great thought experiment this mm. uh, episode and it's it's what i'm particularly fond of myself because it's just so stuffed with ideas that you've just been outlining there I, I absolutely love that line when the government minister says what is history history is a second ago the first time i saw the episode that that really that really stuck with me it's a wow you know all the implications that come out of that are fascinating yeah i also really like that it means a different thing to the two the two kind of lead characters in that for him it's very much about he wants to see as far back as possible he's a historian mm -hmm. so he doesn't necessarily think about kind of the psychological implications of this whereas obviously his wife is just concerned with seeing their dead child again so so she has a more emotional attachment and is mm -hmm. but they're both kind of just as erratic as each other um but in different ways they're just their obsessions lead them to different points with, with seeing the, seeing the past and I thought that was that was really clever. And there was a, as you're saying, about great lines. There's a brilliant line where someone says, "The past has its terrors for most people," which I just thought was very very poetic. Uh, it's also interesting the idea. I mean, what you were just saying there, Dylan, about everyone has their own narrow viewpoints. That's mm. one of the people's problems in this story. And it's it's another theme of the story that there's too much specialization. That all these different experts are in their silos. Everyone's kind of a bit monomaniacal 
thinking about what they're wanting. And as a result, not only are they not seeing the bigger picture, but society as a whole is, is suffering because there aren't enough people who are interested in lots of different things mm. uh, in the way. I, I mean, Isaac Asimov himself was famously uh, a bit of a Renaissance man. He was mm. interested in all kinds of, not just science. He had a great interest in art and history and literature as Detective well. Detective stories. Mm. So I think that's another interesting theme that comes out of it. So we were talking earlier about... Uh... The, the connections between every single other science fiction show, British science fiction show, and Doctor Who. Well, I spoke about some of the the, the casting uh, crossovers with Doctor Who. Why did Willoughby Goddard never appear in a Doctor Who? That's outrageous. That, that never <laughs> happened. But the, the director of this episode was John Gorry, who directed The Keys of Marinus. Well, this is a little bit a cut above The Keys of Marinus, it has to be said. It, yeah. It, it really is. And then you got mm. the, the associate producer, George Spenton Foster. He directed a Doctor Who, didn't he? Bernard Wilkie's doing special effects, Brian Hodgson doing the radiophonic music, Dudley Simpson doing the incidental music. It's a, it's a Doctor Who, 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 who's who, isn't it, really? It is. But as you say, this, you, if you put the Keys of Baroness and this next to each other, you wouldn't think those were the same director. And I no. love the Keys of Baroness, but it is definitely done with a more, there is less care taken over that, whereas this is, you know, this has been thought about and considered a lot more. And it's just, mm. it, it's a very well-directed well piece. There's that haunting moment that it finishes with, of like um, it, uh, Sylvia watching the clip of her, her dead daughter, and it's repeated three times. And that was, you know, his call. Mm. He thought about how to present this, and it's a really haunting image. Absolutely. Mm. George Spenton Foster, by the way, directed The Image of the Fendal and The Rebus Operation. He also directed uh, an adaptation of The Picture of Dorian Gray in 1976 for Play for the Month, which I've never seen. I don't know whether it exists, but well, as I was looking this up, I was like, that's something I need to try and track down. Absolutely. That's it. It is a very well-mounted episode. It's also interesting to see Sylvia Coleridge giving a terrific a very real performance yes. as this grieving mother. Because you know, in the past, certainly in Doctor Who and other things, she's tended to play these very eccentric, big characters. And uh, so it was nice to see her doing something a lot more naturalistic. It, it struck me as well, reading up on the missing episodes as well as watching the ones that survive, uh, how, how often casting choices were repeated throughout the course of the... Uh, of the four seasons so uh, what's it david langton does another one as well uh, uh, it's season three frankenstein something mark frankenstein two, two. Uh, frankenstein mark, mark two. two that's david langton in that isn't it and uh, david maxwell does another one as well yeah but, but people crop up again and again um which is i find quite interesting because this was a prestigious series and mm. I, th I think the, the 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 connection with well, it's, as we said, it's got its antecedents in Armchair Theatre on on ATV, on ABC, which was a hugely prestigious uh, series. Out of this world came from that. Out of the unknown came from that. There was the connection then with the Wednesday play on BBC. Uh, when Irene Shubik left this, she went off to become producer of the Wednesday play. Massive accolade for her there. Mm. Um, the, the, it was a prestigious program, yet there does seem to have been. A, you haven't got the the huge range of the theatrical nights and people like that that you might expect might turn up in things like this. That that uh, 
I mean, there was a there was a distinction in those days, wasn't it, between TV actors and film actors? You are seeing mm. the same actors over and over again, and, and there's, there's a bit of a company feel to it. It's, it's it's true. I think at that point there was still a little bit of a division between the television and theatre and mm. film mm. in the way that uh, seems inconceivable now, yeah. really, to think yeah. about. Definitely, what you say, sort of BBC faces that turn up a lot oh, in yeah. the same way that. Uh, on talking pictures in the British film industry, so there are certain people, the Sam Kids of this world, who just keep turning up in everything. I met Sam Kid. Oh, did you? I what, met what? Sam Kid when when I was I was I was I would have been five or six, and he was the celebrity who was invited to open the annual fete at Warwick Hospital, which was a highlight of the social world of Warwick, <laughs> where I was brought up, <laughs> and uh, the hospital fete, and Sam Kid opened it one year. There you go. <laughs> So I met some kid. I'm suitably impressed. I'm quite that. impressed by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you, what you're saying is absolutely right. Yeah, and it's also interesting. I think it's the only example I think I can think of of a turns around that trope about the government conspiracy because yes. generally mm. in in stories a government conspiracy is a terrible thing that will be exposed by a heroic individual, and this flips it on its head and says no actually it's the heroic individuals who are in the wrong yeah. this time and actually the government in fact there's another marvelous line when he says you just assume we were stupid and petty <laughs> but they're not heroic individuals are they really because they're the three of them are in it for that that's potterly and uh, uh, Jonas Foster and Ralph Nimmo, they're in it for their own reasons. Yeah. They're in it for academic uh, vaingloriousness, aren't they? They're, they're, mm. they're in it for the, for the glory of, of, of discovery and so on. Yeah, yeah, perhaps protagonists. That ending has been criticised over the years, the fact that uh, the, the government were the good guys after all, or the wise mm. guys or whatever. Mm. That has been criticised, but well, uh, I it, think it's... that works quite nicely. Governments can't always be wrong. You know? Well, despite all the evidence of, of <laughs> yeah, our eyes, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think there is a, it's, I think that's very interesting, that, because I think we have been all our lives in TV. <laughs> it's rare to find really good politicians. You know, politicians yes. are generally in drama, yes. there to be distrusted. Yes. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying that's often without good reason, <laughs> but. Uh, but there is that sense that you know the authority is that 60s thing. Ever since the 60s, the authority is something we've got to be suspicious of. But but don't you think I mean you're right, it does go back a long way, but don't you think that changed very dramatically with the X-Files? That that, mm. that I mean that really did catch the mood, didn't it? And that was mm. entirely about the heroic individuals battling government conspiracy. I mean, I'm mm. I'm remembering back to the UFO, the Jerry Anderson series, when uh, Michael Billington's character first get in, gets involved with uh, with Shadow, mm. uh, Ed Bishop sits him down and says, yes, aliens exist, you're quite right, but just imagine how awful it would be if everybody found out about it. There would be mass panic, there would be this, that and the other. And, and that is presented as the reasonable argument yeah. that, for heaven's mm. sake, don't tell people, we know best, we'll look after them. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess here we're obviously getting the thing that the, the government don't want people to know about this because think of the implications. But yeah. we don't know anything else about this government. They could be mm. 
they could be the worst government we've ever yes. had. It's just this one, <laughs> yeah. this one thing that they're doing right. Yeah, there is a you get the sense this is a very controlled society. Yes. Uh, but it's nice to see talk. that Richard Bellamy comes out of the House of Lords and gets involved directly in government yes. <laughs> <laughs> later in life. In his nice suit of the future. Well, yeah, but isn't don't don't the uh, don't don't the, the designs look great in terms of the suits mm. of the future and all that? They're they're not mm. out of this world silver sparkly things, are they? They're they're, they're credible future fashions. I mean, who is. knows what the future fashion will be? But that's that's a credible version of it. Yeah. It's that's a believable it's... world. Yeah, mm. yeah. One of the things that um, I really liked is that the setup is almost you're expecting a ghost story when it starts. Mm. It feels like, oh, this could be a ghost story. And the music mm. sort of sells it as a ghost story. Okay. But actually, it's, it's kind of steep, it's steeped in the science fiction element. But it is, I suppose there's an argument that it is an unconventional ghost story and that people being haunted by their own past. But mm. it does kind the of... Dead has, past, even. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it was it, the fact that it goes down a more kind of it's more about like the moral take and you know what is right in this situation intrigued me. The, the little Carthaginian statuette of the yes. god, um, mm. yeah, which we see very early on, don't we? And, and and we're told that that's how the Carthaginians sacrifice children by burning them. Yeah, by so putting think, them inside. Mm. But that's a red herring almost. Yeah, total, total yeah. red herring. Yeah, yeah. Like he's he's obsessed with that. But ultimately, because you're thinking, okay, so any second now we're going to find out that he sacrificed his daughter, and that's why he doesn't want her to use the machine. Well, he sacrificed his daughter to, to smoking, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the altar of the fag. <laughs> that's it. There's a public information film yeah. for you. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be like Arnold. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Dylan, you've also gone for a season one episode for your choice. I, I have uh, indeed. I went for some lapse of time. Uh, I would love to hear you uh, talk about it. Well, you're in luck. Um, so <laughs> I, I've just got a brief kind of summation of the plot. Um, it's a fairly simple plot, but, you know, it, it kind of picks up pace as it goes along. So Dr. Max Harrow wakes up from uh, a reoccurring nightmare in which he's pursued by these barbaric creatures slash figures that look, I mean, to me, they look like cavemen, but obviously as the story goes along, you find out that isn't the case. Yeah, but when he wakes up, he finds one of them is collapsed on his doorstep. Um, and it's a tramp that's suffering from a genetic disorder caused by radiation that actually killed his kid, who, um, killed his kid when he was an infant. Um, the man, it turns out, seems to be from some post-apocalyptic future, um, and he is found clutching a finger bone. Uh, this finger bone later turns out to be Harrow's, and as Harrow realises realizes where this guy is from and what he represents, he is slowly sent mad as he realises the truth of this stranger. Um, it's a, a very interesting story. Again, I don't necessarily think it's the best one, but when I first discovered this series, this was the one that kind of grabbed me because from the get-go, I was like, what the hell is going on here? It was just, it was frantic. There was a central mystery that just hooked me in. The Schmitherson, as he's called, which is the, um, the, the character, the, the tramp slash uh, future person. It's such a grotesque kind of makeup, just such, such, such a grotesque image that you're just sat there the whole time going, what on earth is this? Um, but it is just... Um, very enjoyable. It was based on a story by uh, John Bruner, who uh, I'm not familiar with, but he wrote loads of genre novels, short stories, 
um, non-poetry, uh, non-genre, and even some pornography. Um, but uh, this is, as far as I know, this is the only story of his. Um, the script is by Leon Griffiths, who had a prolific TV career, including The Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, Out of This World. He did The Yellow Pill for both Out of the Unknown and Out of This World, which I thought was uh, quite interesting. So that one was adapted twice. Uh, he also did Play for Today in Minder, and it was directed by Roger Jenkins, who did The Avengers, Compact, Zed Cars, Adam Adamant Lives, The Uneden Line, Howard's Way, Coronation Street, all 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 that stuff but it's it's a beautifully directed story there is some, like particularly kind of the future stuff it's and all the nightmare scenes they're so kind of visceral and harrowing and you see like then sacrifice this plastic doll to a flame and stuff like that and it's just it is just feral and i think it's a beautiful kind of um exploration of kind of a breakdown of society but not through kind of conventional storytelling it's just this is what would happen post-apocalypse. This is with this, the radiation sickness and stuff like that. Eventually, we de-evolve into these kind of caveman-like figures. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's a really uh, great story. There's a, mm. there's a lovely bit, um, which could have been so much more gruesome uh, towards the end, because uh, the, the, the Harrow, uh, played, by the way, by the brilliant Ronald Lewis, yeah. who, again, sadly died so very young. Uh, in sad circumstances uh, but Harrow anyway s steals his own finger and goes off to bury it um, rather not to bury it he, st he also steals the kneecap of a government yes. which has been removed because what has happened is that the finger has been buried and the future person has found the, 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 the finger mm -hmm. and traced it back to him and blames him for everything going wrong which seems a bit of a jump to be fair it is. <laughs> but yeah so he's, he's going to replace it with this kneecap so that the, the fellow who should get the blame the government mm -hmm. minister cops the blame but in the original version of the script the government minister had a, had had a leg amputated <laughs> and, and he goes running off carrying, carrying this government minister's leg which he then uh, he then buries but so we we had perhaps a narrow escape there. Yeah, Ronald Lewis, absolutely fabulous actor. Mm. Really he is. great performance in this. He's he's so kind of intense, and you kind of believe, you know, that he goes as he goes mad. He's also in uh, Lambda One, which is another yes. one of my favourite episodes about the unknown. Yeah, and as as you say, like he was, he, he's a very talented guy, a really good actor. But you know, he has a bit of a tragic story and very so, sad ending. Yeah, very, very sad. sad ending. And he obviously and, had his own demons as well. You know, there's, there's some controversial stories about him. That yeah, there are. And yeah. and the, the two policemen, uh, played by a very young Peter Bowles, mm. and rather fabulously George Woodbridge, the the in landlord in every Hammer horror film. <laughs> and, al and also from Pipkins. He was Pipkin in Pipkins, George Woodbridge. Really? Didn't he go Pipkin? Yes, he was. Oh, didn't realise that. Actually, I was just watching this with the commentary on, and the, the director remembers that Peter Bull wasn't very happy about being cast as a, as a constable. He was sort of used to playing more senior figures right. think, wow. already at that point. <laughs> at that point, but he was he was Avengers villains and mm -hmm. Saint villains and things like that, wasn't he, Peter Bowles? He'd, he'd got a good start to his career in uh, in those ITC shows and the Avengers and so on. I think I think he appears in a couple of episodes of the Avengers, if I remember right, as different mm. villains. I must admit, I'm very glad you 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 chose this episode, uh, Dylan, because. Um, 
it's helped me reappraise it, actually. The first time I watched it, I was a bit down on some lots of time. I think I felt it was a very contrived story somehow yeah. that and it was a bit too hysterical and but uh in fact i went back to my original review just to check my thoughts then and yeah the, quite negative but watching it this time it's gone way up in my estimation now mm -hmm. i think it's a very clever story it's almost like a sort of pacifist version of the terminator in yes. a way he's, yes, he's yes, like yeah He's not come back to to kill anybody. He's just mm. kind of come back as to witness and mm. say, come back to pull a face at him. Yes. <laughs> well, um, you've got John Gabriel playing Smithson. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, it's it's really kind of hard to judge his acting merits, but he certainly, with this kind of made up language that he speaks, he certainly gives it his all. Um, mm. But he also appears that as everybody showing up in different episodes is in too many cooks and beachheads. Be I'm, I'm afraid in this, he, he reminded me a little bit of the caveman character in the, the comedy Ghosts. That uh, if you've seen oh, Ghosts yeah. uh, recently, mm -hmm. but, uh, okay. yeah, I can see why, where, where you're going with that. So. It, yes. well, it even gets a bit Papa Lazaro at one point. Uh, yes, it does. It does. <laughs> but, uh, it's still a very enjoyable performance. There's, yes, other, yes. There's, there's a couple of other faces which you may have not spotted that are in it as well. In the uh, supporting artists, um, John Scott Martin is one of the survivors who was yep. the mm. Dalek guy. Yep. And one of the medical students is Victor Pemberton, uh, yes. who later writes um, Fury from the Deep and obviously Ace of Wands and things like that. Um, oh. oh, no, I, I, I didn't recognise Victor Pemberton. I, I, I must admit I didn't spot him. And then I read it in, in the notes and went uh, back. Yes, quite know. so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> the, the most famous person to be involved in this production is Ridley Scott, who did the yes. set design. Mm, yes. Now, obviously, Ridley's name shows up on a few things. I think he did. He end up directing an episode of Adam Adamant, or did the yes, set he design does, yes. or something? Yeah, he does. Um, and obviously, Ridley's gone on to, to great success and done amazing mm -hmm. work. But as set designs go. This is neither good nor bad. It's just, you know, it's set mm. in a few rooms. It's not what you would describe as stylized or kind of heavily designed or anything like that. He wasn't challenged to exactly, exactly. You know, it's set in a hospital essentially and a couple That's of houses. It. The best directed stuff is the night shoot stuff when they're kind mm. of in the future. And that's not really about the design, it's about the cast and it's about the editing and how they've done the vision mixing and stuff like that. So mm. that's kind of it, it's a shame we don't get more of Ridley because I would love to know what his design work was like. He, he directed the Adam Adamant Lives episode, The League of on Chari the League of Intra on Charitable Ladies. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> that's yeah. a great title. I do it like is. that title. If difficult <laughs> to say. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's a it's a fascinating. Um, Story, sorry, this one. And I think it kind of wrong. I think probably the reason I reacted to it badly is it kind of uh, wrong foots you. You sort of assume that this person from the future he's got some sort of master plan, or there's going to be some big mm. twist or revelation. And that's not really what happens. He's really, he's as just as he's a victim, he's just kind of, yeah, been, who's just through some weird mutated power or fluke been able to travel back in, in it's never explained in time. Is it? no, how, it's never explained how he's traveled back in time what he's there for what he intends to do or really mm -hmm. much at all it is cool, oh, is but I, I like the mystery i like yeah. the fact that it's, it's 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 not resolved yeah. and it's 
because it's more about the exploration of how um, of, of his effect on the other characters landing there. So I can, as you say, it's a flaw, but I can live without it because I can yeah. kind of the, the cast make up for it. Probably the nastiest mm -hmm. point in the entire production is the bit where Ronald Lewis gets his finger cut off in the car yes. door, mm. uh, which 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 is a bit of a winter. <laughs> Oh yeah, even though you don't see anything, it's you just it's so well conveyed. Yes. <laughs> and I was just looking at the um the his, his superior and Professor Leach. Mm. He actually needs to go to some classes about uh man management and human resources, because there's this I, I do like the scene. It's very, very theatrical, the moment where with our hero Max he's he's on this descent now. And he uh, and, and his superior brings him into the office and, and shouts at him and tells him to flip him, pull himself together. And do you think you're the only person who cares about anything? Professor Leach, of course, played by the splendidly named Moultrie Kelsall. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't meet many Moultries, do you? No, you don't. That is very Dickensian. It's almost as as Mofium, actually, about that, uh, that name. You say about people management, but there's but also like they've got this mystery person who's he knows killed a dog um and done various other things and carries a stone slash weapon, a stone weapon, a shot and stone on them. And they just put they just put him in a room with all the other patients who are in for whatever they <laughs> whatever they're doing. It's a, it's a very odd choice. <laughs> yes, the, the man, man management aspect. I, I suspect that what happened is, is in this future that uh, the this particular hospital is run by uh, some private company, probably Circo or somebody, <laughs> and he's not a professor of medicine. He's probably a professor of adding up money and things yes. like that. Uh, <laughs> who really has no idea about how a hospital works. But yes, yes, Ronald Lewis is a terrific foot because he gets all these speeches. Uh, it's a very speechifying kind of role. It's a bit like a, he's like an angry young man type character in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and he delivers these yeah terrific speeches with power. I think he almost not quite sells when he starts talking in the, the same tongue as Schmitherson at, at the end. Like it's it, he just about sells it. Obviously, it, it, mm. it is a bit peculiar. And as a linguist myself, as a as a modern linguist, I'm I'm mm -hmm. absolutely thrilled that they they bring in a, a linguist basically to sit and chat yes. with this uh, this chap and, and, and decipher his, his lesson because we all do have that superpower that we can just have a little conversation <laughs> and start noting words down. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that classic uh, yeah TV shorthand with experts. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's nice to see a linguist as a bit of a hero. <clears throat> Indeed, I was, I was Laura Denville, but played by Delena Kid, who's on the commentary, isn't she? She was, mm. she was still around. It. I was, I was interested to note as well that this story received the highest reaction index for the entire series as well. So it certainly went down well. With you, you pointed out that we'd both chosen episode one, uh, sorry, series one episodes. Mm -hmm. um, well, of course, series one is the one that's pretty much there, isn't it? There are yeah. only mm. two episodes missing from series one. Now, mm. tragically, the ones that are missing from series one are probably two of the ones we'd most want to see, which is mm. uh, Irene Shubik's own very favourite episode, Andover and the Androids, yeah. which is uh, and mm. the Android, which is a, a comedy one with a robot. And Fox in the Forest, mm -hmm. the, the other yeah. one, uh, which is uh, the, um, the Ray Bradbury story. And ad Forest, adapted yeah. by Terry Nation as well. Adapted by Terry Nation, yeah. I would, I would have loved to have seen what Terry Nation did with it. I think it's a very lazy observation that people make that, that Terry Nation was a bit of a hack. 
Terry Nation is a tremendous storyteller, when he mm. bothered, especially when he can be bothered. And I think absolutely he, people often take some of his later Doctor Who work as an example of him not caring that much. But at that point, he was busy working on other shows and doing a really good job on those other shows. Mm. Just didn't have much time for Doctor Who, but was happy to get that Dalek money, essentially. <laughs> Although The Fox in the Forest actually was regarded as being the weakest of the series by the production team. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's the one that... Uh, well, that and No Place Like Earth, which, which of course was the, the first one that was shown mm. uh, from, um, from a John Wyndham story. And Irene Shubik didn't want that to be shown first. She fought and fought not to have that one shown first. And she was overruled by Sidney Newman, who later said to her, no, you're quite right. Basically, because mm. they weren't happy with it, because they'd got Terence Morgan, fresh from uh, Sir Francis Drake, also seen recently on Talking Pictures TV, uh, mm-hmm. as, as the, the key protagonist, and basically wasn't very good. And, and mm. also it had got that business of Martian canals and, and, and so on, a very old-fashioned yeah. sort of view of Mars. And they were very aware that that's not what Mars was like, but mm. they, the story was an allegory, and press ahead with it, do it, and the rest of it. And Irene Schubert was very keen to, to make all the comments about, no, we know Mars isn't really like this, and it's an mm. allegory. And then the critics just missed that altogether and laid into it for being in this, <laughs> this wrong vision of what Mars should have been. I, I really like that vision of Mars, though. And I think, actually, I know it's, it's, not, it's, not the most fun, it's not the most fantastic episode, but it's also, special effects-wise, when you've got the going down the river and the Martian mountains yeah. behind it and stuff like that, it's a really striking opening to a series, I think. And Hannah Gordon's great in it. Yes, of course. Yeah. And George Costell. Yeah, visually it's quite impressive. And then when you go to Venus, and I think the way they, the Venusian jungle, which of course is another sort of pulp sort of nonsense. But but that's it, uh, isn't it? If you you read 50s science fiction, that's Mm. what you get. You get the canals Mm. of Mars, you get the jungles of Venus, and you get the rings of Saturn. But definitely compared to the Counterfeit Man, it's a much flabbier yeah. episode, yeah. whereas Counterfeit Man is a mostly tense yeah. sort of alien among us. Yes. We haven't That's mentioned uh, Time in Advance, which is another uh, great episode. Oh, where, mm. where, where, where criminals, well, no, not criminals, people who are, who are thinking, mm, I think I might commit a crime, uh, can go to see a judge and confess to it. And, and they say, now go on and do a slightly sl- shorter sentence off on the colony worlds, putting your life in danger, setting up colonies and so on. And then when you come back, you can commit your murder. Yeah. And <laughs> two chaps come back uh, ready to do their murders, one of them being uh, Mike Pratt out of Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a nice idea. I think it's slightly overlong. I think it would have been a happier half hour episode. I mean, there's, there is something quite nice about this idea. There's these two guys who have a license to murder, and people keep coming up to them and saying, uh, I, I've got someone I'd like to be killed if, yes, you, if yes, you're yes. interested. Um, but for me, there's a little bit too much just um, mostly set in this futuristic hotel, and there seems to be a lot of him just kind of walking around being a tourist. Yeah. Sort of being in this futuristic hotel. I, I don't buy the ending at all either. Uh, the the switch mm. around as to who commits a murder under who, yeah. when mm. basically he's been through everything with this guy for the last seven years and saved each, each other's lives and all the rest of it. I I don't buy that. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same. But I do like the paranoia that it instills in the supporting cast of all these people who've been involved in someone's life and they know he's coming back and he's going to kill somebody. 
Yeah. And all of a sudden they start confessing their various sins and double crossings. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that's that's really great. And obviously you've got the idea of pre-crime, which I think was coined by Philip K. Dick. Uh, mm. And obviously yes. the most kind of mainstream version of that would be Minority Report. Absolutely. Mm. But it's such a it's such a fun little science fiction idea that you can't help get swept along in it. Yeah, the, is it Stranger in the Family as well? I love mm. that. Which which is uh, it's a bit. It's the same idea as the Jerome Bixby short story. It's a wonderful life, isn't it? What's Jerome Bixby, wasn't it? Am I right? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Jerome uh, Bixby. Where you've you've got the child it's, with the superpowers, and mm. how do we can how do you control a child who is a mutant and born with superpowers? Yeah. And and there he is living with Peter Copley uh, <laughs> in a little flat, and uh, and 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 you've got John Paul out of do watch mm. and jack may out of adam adamant and nelson gabriel out of the archers uh pursuing it mm. and, and, and uh it's a little bit like an x-man an x-men comic or something like that mm. like it's, it's, it's very similar to that and that was i think well, i think this is a couple of years after the x-men had launched i think they launched in 63 mm. and this is 65 so there's, there's kind of parallels to be drawn there as well that one it was does. also adapted mm. again for uh, I can't remember the name of the series, an American series. They they bought up the the, the, the rights to adapt it afterwards, and it was remade. Uh, so yeah, the first season, very strong, not surprisingly, got recommissioned for a second series that pretty much stays with the formula. The first two seasons feel a very much a, a unit to, together, and uh, the episode that I've uh, chosen to talk about. Is, is probably one of the better known of the uh, Out of the Unknown episodes, which is The Machine Stops, based on the E.M. Foster short story. The distant future. Following an unexplained apocalypse, humanity lives underground inside a highly advanced technological system which covers the world, called The Machine. People live most of their lives alone inside cubicles which provide for their every need, communicating only by video or intercom. Rationality, science and humanism are the keystones of the civilization, but secretly many have begun worshipping the machine, treating their manual as a holy book. Vashti, played by Yvonne Mitchell, who had been Judith in the BBC adaptation of 1984, spends her days delivering history lectures. Her son, Kuno, played by Michael Gofard in his first significant television role, is not content with his enclosed life and rebels by discovering a hidden tunnel leading to the surface. He discovers a thriving countryside, but the machine drags him back with robotic tentacles. Months later, the system is beginning to fail. Kudo contacts his mother with a new idea. The machine stops. Despite the growing number of faults and warnings, Vashti and her online friends cling to the hope all will be fixed. By the time she tries to escape, it is far too late and they all perish in the darkness. I'll start with Steve this time. So what, what do you think about uh, The Machine Stops? Well, it's, it's an interesting episode. I, I, I'd hate to use the word overrated. 
I, I don't know. I don't think it's as great an episode as as people sometimes claim it is. I think it's a very, very good episode. It, it. I think part of the problem. I mean, it, it's. I think Dylan said it to me a minute ago that it's a story that seems familiar. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that might be because uh, it's the oldest story that was adapted by a long, long time. It's uh, E.M. Forster. It was written in, mm-hmm. in the 1900s. I think it was about 1910, was it? Thereabouts, it was written. It was, I mean, this mm. is the guy who wrote A Passage to India and, and A Room <laughs> with a View and a Howard's Way. <laughs> There's all these yeah, great so novels. I'd agree, yeah. To some extent, it is. I don't think he was an old man when he wrote it, but it has <laughs> that kind of fogeyish sort of uh, it, 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 reaction to technology. It suggests, it's, to me, it's, it's a science fiction story written by somebody who's not a science fiction writer mm. and who feels that this is what a science fiction story should be like. Um, it reminds me of, uh, I think there were better versions of it. I and mean, when we spoke earlier about the Caves of Steel, the Asimov story, which again has, mm-hmm. has that underground city. And then the classic example uh, is probably um, uh, George Lucas's THX 1138. Yes. Is, that, yeah. is it Lucas or Spielberg? THX 1138. It's, 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 it's George Lucas. George Lucas, yeah. Um, again, with the underground city. And, and that ends with the uh, the protagonist coming up into the sunshine, doesn't it? And mm. uh, to the sound of J.S. Bach and so on, as he's there in the, in the sun. It reminded me a bit of that. Um, Michael Gothard is fabulous in it, in, in mm. his first big role. Um, uh, would go on to be Kai in um, in Arthur of the Britons uh, very mm. shortly afterwards. Uh, people of my age remember. He does have a, a he has a fantastic face. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's not a lot happens in it, does it? To be fair, it, it's uh, until mm-hmm. they all die at the end, somewhat mysteriously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there is a being unkind. I think to some extent we're not privy to the whole big picture in a way, like Vashti, because yeah. she's just a component within this the machine. It strikes so, a chord, doesn't it, with how we've been over the last uh, 18 months of everybody in yeah. their own little compartments mm. talking to each other on screens. Yeah. It does seem remarkably prescient. There's a line in it which uh, really jumped out at me the first time I watched it. Uh, no, actually the second time, because Facebook hadn't been invented. The first time I was watching a shaky fourth-generation VHS of it, first time round. Um uh, when her son says, you know, we've we, we've no relationships anymore, and she, and she says, well, don't be ridiculous. I have thousands of friends, yeah. sort of like on my console. I think actually the first time I watched it, and it was like a fourth generation copy. That scene looked even more nightmarish with the bodies <laughs> all yes, that gather the rats. This corridor that I've just put on my virtual background. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. That's it. For, <laughs> for those of you at home, Steve has just put a, a corridor from this episode. For, that, for those looking in black and white, for those watching in <laughs> black and white, it's the yellow one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I do like the design. I, I don't quite... There's much made of the fact that it's an Edwardian view of the future. Yeah. I don't really get that feeling of Edwardianness. No, to be I, honest, I, really. I, didn't, I didn't pick that up. But it's interesting on the commentary, they say that they wanted to present that Edwardian world. But it's just, mm-hmm. it seems like just a sci-fi view of the future, as you would get in a lot of 60s science fiction. Mm-hmm. By a non-sci-fi quite... writer. Yes. <laughs> and I think it is quite a creditable looking set. I think it looks better than quite a lot of Doctor Who's of, of that period. 
Yeah. So it should. They're a bigger budget. Yeah. Mm. It's, it, it's a great production design. And the sets, like, I like the way the machine sort of pulsates. Like, mm. I think something that you wouldn't have probably picked up on your fourth generation copy. I think <laughs> I saw a, a, like, a, something similar that you don't really pick up on it. And then, you know, when he breaks out and gets to the surface, there's that floating um, airlock door mm. that just kind of floats kind of halfway out of, half out of shot. Um, I just I, th- I think that's a really neat little thing that they didn't need to do mm. in order to sell that scene, but it just it's it's those little things that I think out of the unknown do that just kind of mm. make make the worlds more believable. That's nice, Josh. And I find that the um, the white worms, the tentacles that mm-hmm. come out to grab Kuno and drag him back into the machine. That's actually a really effective scene. That could have looked a little bit uh, ludicrous because. Yeah. I, I think I think he sells it. His scream is like mm. a, like quite a terrifying scream, and it makes you believe like he is, you know, under threat. Mm. And Brian Hodgson's uh, sound, yes. I think, helps mm. that buzzing. In fact, um, for a Doctor Who fan watching that particular episode, it sounds very familiar because a lot of those burbles and electronic sounds do find their way into Troughton Who, yeah. which is being made around the same time. We get a lot of that throughout the series. Like you can't go through an episode without hearing a door from the Dalek City or something like that. There's always there's always something there. <laughs> well, it's even so, more more explicit later on in this uh, in this second series, isn't it? Where the episode The Prophet, mm-hmm. where you've got robots basically played by the same robots that would later turn up as the white robots in the in the Mind Robber. Yeah, uh, mm. painted. Uh, uh, well, let's say dark because they were in black and white, <laughs> painted dark. I think they were mm. black. In fact, uh, yeah, that was probably the very first time I heard the, the, you know that title out of the unknown. It would be in that context of the mind robber. Well, the Daleks so, turn up in a later episode as well, don't they? Mm. Uh, yeah. An episode that oh, it's so sad that it's missing. It's what it's uh, get off my cloud. Get off my cloud. Uh, sounds like so much fun and you look at the photographs with people in these barbarella style yeah. costumes yeah. And, and knowing that the daleks turned up in it it's it's a it's a crying shame that that one's missing and uh so i was talking to steve but uh, i didn't really so what's your sort of overall view dylan of 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 uh the machine stops i, I think i think it's a well-executed piece I think, as we say, it, the story sounds familiar. The story's familiar because it's the oldest one, and we've seen it in THX. Mm-hmm. It's also, but it's also similar to like Logan's Run. I would say the future bits of Twelve Monkeys as well, stuff yep. like that. If you've yep. kind of seen that world before or well, after this, just kind of. Um, but I do think I think the performances sell it. The set design sells it. The direction sells it. Like they've taken great care of it, but it is overly familiar in the way that a lot of these stories are familiar but this one feels like the most familiar one but it is like it's still enjoyable and I love the panic as the machine literally stops and everybody breaking down I don't quite buy them all sort of falling down in that corridor but certainly um, uh, Kuno's mom her kind of realizing that it's all going to stop and her collapse and her breakdown is is like really striking wanted to give a shout out to Yvonne Mitchell as well as yeah. uh, as Vashti because uh, I think she gives a it's a difficult performance because she's sort of playing someone who's very dispassionate for most of it she's mm. not particularly likable for that matter either she's very self-involved she says these things 
these incredibly immature things for a woman of her age about, oh, I just want to kill myself. My mm. lecture wasn't well received. And, uh, so, but it's a, it's a, it's a good performance. Yeah. It, it's it, like the character's got like narcissistic traits, but it, that's what this, I guess what, when you're compartmentalized like that and you've got everything that you need, it kind of, the society is kind of encouraged to be that way. And they talk mm. a lot about euthanasia centers and things like that, which I think is like a very interesting concept that you know, it will be like, oh, I'm bored. I just, you know, I'm not fulfilled. I will just end my life, which is. Mm. This is the episode that, that won the prizes, of course, didn't it? it I guess, yeah, the fifth international science fiction uh, film festival. Mm as you say, at, at Trieste. Trieste, yes, that's right. At, at and um, although it's interesting on the commentary, the director, Phil Savelle, says, uh, to be honest, there wasn't much competition. Most of the other films were like documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. No, I mean, to be fair, I, 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 I don't think it's the best one of this series. I think mm -hmm. series two, season two, has some smashing ones, even of the ones that survive. I love mm. Tunnel Under the World. Oh, uh, yeah. I love Thirteen to Centaurus as well, which mm. which which is a fabulous one, mm. which which pinches a future idea from Doctor Who, doesn't it? Of the people who think they're off to a to an alien planet to, in order to set up a better world, but are actually buried. Oh, well, not mm. buried, but they're in they're in a, a hangar somewhere. They, they yeah. think they're in space. Pinches the idea from um, the invasion of the dinosaurs. Um, mm. which was so pinched part of its idea from the enemy of the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's a very clever idea. Yeah. Season two does have some great episodes. Yes. Um, I particularly, I, I'm a big fan of Lambda One, which has got mm -hmm. this haunting, kind of terrifying imagery. And it kind of weirdly reminds me of Event Horizon, um, but yeah. obviously <laughs> done on like yeah. a, a BBC budget of, of, of the 60s, but it's Absolutely. still those same concepts. And it, for its time, what it achieves is is like fantastic like it's genuinely unsettling kind of imagery within the, within the episode um, and, and probably the most chilling depiction of uh, nuclear Armageddon in level seven as well. Yes, of course. Where you've, mm. you've got the people in the underground base who are there to actually press the buttons. A, a bit like in Warriors of From the Deep, but, but not, <laughs> not entirely. <laughs> uh, where they're, they're pressing the buttons that's, that destroy the world effectively and then slowly but surely they're going to die as well because yeah. the, 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 the radiation is going to reach them. It takes them four mm. months to die, doesn't it, or something like that? It mm. does. Yes, it's, it's, it's a very sort of Doctor Strange love kind of a story, that one. It's as much about yes. the danger comes from the military minds, in a way, as much as the weapons in that one. It is, I mean, it's interesting, it's directed by Rudolf Cartier. Oh, yes, well. yes, of course, yes. yes. And, and, and uh, we're missing our two Asimovs from this season, aren't we, as well? Uh, we're, we're missing uh, Satisfaction Guaranteed. Well, we mentioned mm. The Prophet, but also mm -hmm. Satisfaction Guaranteed, which I, I would love to see. We've got a few little clips from Satisfaction mm. Guaranteed, mm. one of the, f the few episodes that the bits do survive, with a, 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 a very uh, early in her career, Wendy Craig, uh, being mm. set to look after a domestic robot, which um, the, the relationship develops in unexpected ways between them. Mm, that is a, that is a great shame that that one is missing. 
so very much, and I think it's a crying shame that um, I'm, I keep using that phrase. I must find a new one. Uh, <laughs> that so much of season three, well, practically all of season three, all is one. missing because here you had the strength. You had oh. the stories as chosen by Irene Schubert. And with very much it's still her guiding force, but you get it in colour yes. as well. Yes. And... Well, let's just, I mean, the, the episode that survives is The Last Lonely Man, isn't it, with George mm. Cole and Peter mm. Halliday. Yes, Packer mm. from The Invasion, amongst many other Doctor Who appearances. Mm. Uh, and that's great. That's fine. And it's, 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 it's an interesting idea, the idea of uh, it has been normalised that when people die, their experiences are then transferred into a nominated uh, mm. successor. And you can have more than one of them inside you. And it's, it's a nice idea. And it all goes horribly wrong, of course. But then when you look at the episodes that are missing from from this series three when you've got the john windham story random quest which mm. directed by christopher barry which which mm. is by all accounts was a wonderful version of that not to be confused with the appalling film that <laughs> came out within a year or two of this happening a quest for love with joan collins um, mm. it was done again on bbc4 a few years ago uh, with samuel west and was very good but i'd love to see that original the, the Asimov, The Naked Sun, the sequel yeah. to The Caves of Steel. Of Steel. Mm. Which uh, looks, looks fascinating from the telesnaps and the, well, the reconstruction. There's a reconstruction, isn't there? And and mm. you get a great idea of uh, on the reconstruction. I love the reconstruction there. The Yellow Pill, again, mm. exists as a mm. reconstruction. And for me, that's I'm, rather surprisingly is the story I would most want to see again of those um, from the reconstruction. Yeah. And and again, again, the... The Clifford Steamite one, Beachhead, with yeah. Ed Bishop, mm. which fabulous stuff, fabulous stuff. Looks very promising. And another one that just recently has kind of leapt up my list of things I'd like them to find again would be uh, something in the cellar. Audio clips appeared recently uh, online oh, of really? it, and it does sound, it's because from the description of it and the fact it's got Milo or she in it, it I think we've I've tended to think, oh, it's a comedy episode or it's a, one of the lighter episodes about this man who builds a computer in his basement, this new supercomputer, and it becomes inhabited by the spirit of his mother. Uh, which, but in fact, from the clips, and what it's, it actually sounds like quite a sinister story. Yeah. yeah. It's, it sounds quite macabre. It sounds like it had quite a macabre atmosphere to it, especially well, when, when. in it as well. I even got a Radio Times cover that one. Yes, mm. yes. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're tantalised by all of these kind of missing episodes. And, it, like, going through this box set does make you go how lucky we are with Doctor Who that we have all the surviving soundtracks because, you know, mm. just yes. lost. And to, to use a dirty word for a moment, uh, when the Omni rumour was a thing concerning Doctor Who <laughs> and many other lost television series, I know that there was a big rumour about Out of the Unknown too um, and I think mm. there was a delay with the DVD release and everybody was like it's because they found everything obviously they had <laughs> it's just because these things always take time but I think there was you know there was for a few months like this tantalising thing of oh my god we might get to see all of the episodes mm. we're very lucky to have what we have there's, there's a, a number of the missing episodes that we will almost certainly never see I mean, yeah. as i say that the, the restrictions on selling the asimov ones abroad means that for the most part well they weren't sold abroad so they're, they're mm. not going to turn up abroad uh the, the, the similarly with the, the bradbury one as well and this is 
it's a, it's a shame. There are, there are some of the ones we most want to see yeah. probably won't ever happen. Do we mm. do we know? I don't know anything about like the returns of these episodes. Like, it, how, how long ago were these recovered? Were they always in the archive? Do any of you guys? Have well, there's any a idea couple of that have been recovered reasonably. There was a couple. At, at, uh, the tunnel, tunnel under, under the, the world, world was and, recovered, and uh, the one we've just been talking about, thingy, the machine stops. Yeah. That was a recent mm-hmm. recovery. Ah, that's interesting because that's one I just assumed and naively they would have kept a copy of, but. Uh, mm. No, yeah. I think not. I, I, mean, I may have got that wrong. I'll, I'll check that, but I, I, I think I think I'm right. Oh, I'm I'm more likely to trust your judgment than the mine on oh, this one. No, since no, 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 no. You are no. you are an owner of of the splendid the, Mark Ward book. The book. So I think we're coming round to. Uh, I can't believe how fast the time comes because I've been really enjoying this. Looking over time, but I, I think we are coming round to to final thoughts mm. on. Uh, Summing up, uh, out of the unknown, uh, would you would you care to go first, um, Steve? I think it's one of the most important and uh, consistently terrific uh, science fiction series that's ever been produced on British television. I, I think that the fact that the fourth series, and I'm talking about series one to three, to be fair, mm. I'm talking about series yeah. one to three, series mm. four, the fact that that series four is so good. Yet we can look at series four and go, oh, that's disappointing. Tells us an awful lot about the first three series and about how absolutely fantastic those, particularly the adaptations of classic science fiction stories, Asimov, Bradbury, Wyndham and people like that were. It's the the cream of British television, acting, directing, design, everything of the period. And Irina Schubert was an utter genius. Uh, you, You went, mentioned some of the things she did after after leaving here and mm-hmm. play for the day and so on, the, the one you missed was the jewel in the crown, which was was she set that up. Uh, I hang my head. I how could I leave out the jewel, jewel of the crown? Um, well, well, no, she had a fallout and left before it actually <laughs> before it actually happened. But she set that up and she regarded that as the um, mm. as the pinnacle of her career. Didn't Sydney oh. Newman uh, have a genius for picking young, yeah. untried women producers? Dylan, uh, how would you like to sum up your thoughts? I mean, I I can really only echo what Steve said. I think it's a groundbreaking series that, um, you know, it relied on the immense talents of, um, you know, some classic writers from John Wyndham, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, J.G. Ballard, P.M. Foster, all of these kind of classic tales. And then they were brought to, to life by some very talented people from, uh, like the best British television had to offer, like writers, we get Terry Nation, we get Brian Hales, we get Nigel Neal, Nigel Neal, John Wiles goes up in there, and director-wise, you've got you've got Douglas Camfield, you've got Christopher Barry, Michael Ferguson, Rudolf Cartier, uh, Paddy Russell. It's just like a list of the best people of their generation, kind of. It's extraordinary, television. isn't it? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. extraordinary, and it's it, it's the connection with the Wednesday play and with with Amateur yeah. Theatre, isn't it? That this was a prestigious production mm-hmm. which came out of those roots. It didn't. It wasn't some tin pot little sci-fi series that 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 somebody had dreamed up somewhere. This had got classic television roots, and people were wanting to be involved with it. To kind of use a phrase that gets banded around a lot at the moment, it, this would be considered high-end TV. Like it, mm. it, 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 you know, it's appointment viewing. It's like it's 
you know everybody would want to watch it and they it would be it's it's a groundbreaking series to keep saying that again and again but it just is. and it was on a, a minority <laughs> channel that was. the majority mm. of people weren't able to watch mm, well I think, I, I think that justifies the license fee <laughs> If, if nothing else not, does. not if you lived in the wrong part of the country. <laughs> <laughs> You're both very busy people. I'm just wondering, start off with Steve, what, what kind of projects you're currently working on? Thank heavens, not as busy as I once was with uh, with with not having a full time job anymore, which is lovely. But uh, it does mean that uh, I, I'm able to spend a bit more time doing some writing projects and 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 uh, organising Hooverville. We, we missed the year last year because of the uh, the, the plague year, and uh, all being well, we're fine. No, we are returning this autumn, uh, September the fourth. Hooverville organisation in full swing now, so it's really lovely to be back with that. A um, little bit of writing here and there. I've got uh, a story coming out uh, in a book uh, from Altrix Books called um, Master Switches, uh, which is should be coming out uh, within the next couple of months. Uh, it's uh, the, the, the follow-up to a book that came out, uh, which was called Masterpieces. Master, yeah. Uh, and so I've, I've, I've got a story in, in that coming out soon, featuring the Anthony Ainley Master, uh, the seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy, uh, in the guise of Merlin. And this is a charity anthology. It's all entirely unofficial and all the rest of it. So uh, that's uh, that should be out quite soon as well. Being well. Oh. Great stuff, looking forward to that. Uh, now, Dylan, I've just mentioned one of your forthcoming projects. Uh, would you like to talk a bit more about that? Or Yeah, so that? I, yeah, I'm deep in uh, the midst of researching a book on the real-time range, uh, all their releases, the myth-makers, the drama output, um, the documentary ranges and things like that, which um, I was lucky enough that Keith Barnfather actually approached me and asked me to do it. He kind of wanted to document the whole of, like the history of the company and they're kind of they're three years off their 40th anniversary so it seemed like a good time to start um sort of researching that obviously i'm stopping and starting based on work and things like that but i'm kind of i'm probably about halfway through the research phase and i've done like the first hundred releases and i'm just interviewing all the people that have been involved and kind of going on this journey of discovery about a making of a making of which is essentially what it is but um to me it was just like a little corner of Doctor Who that I felt, you know, it was worth writing about. And it's been great going back and revisiting all of those uh, early releases and a lot of them that I hadn't seen before. Keith's wow. coming to Hooverville. He's, uh, he's, he's an old friend. Um, uh, it's, it's worth you asking him about the night that the Hoovers hosted uh, the regional premiere of the Sill film, uh, right. the uh, Sill and the Devil's Seeds of Arador, when the whole of the centre of Derby was closed down through flooding and torrential <laughs> storms and biblical disaster area things. It was, uh, it was, it was quite an experience. Amazing. I, I will definitely ask him about that. I've been touching, I touch base with him every few months and kind of, because I can't do one interview with him because it would just go on forever. So we kind of touch base every few months and we haven't got to the later drama releases yet, but I'll, I'll keep that in mind. And, and I'm a big fan of uh, the podcast as well, Too Hot for TV. I must uh, declare an interest. I was a guest on uh, one <laughs> show, fair enough. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good, fun Doctor Who chat. Yeah, I mean, we, we try not to take ourselves too seriously, but obviously, and you know, we do kind of, 
we, we try and have a respect for the content, but um, but also still kind of poking fun, fun of stuff that uh, you can poke fun at, but without ever being too negative. Um, but yeah, the, the podcast, basically, we look at anything Doctor Who related that is not the TV show. So we do books, comic strips, audios. Um, recently, we did the script for one of the unmade Doctor Who movies, Doctor Who The Time Lord by Johnny Byrne. And we just kind of, just anything that isn't the main TV show, we pick things at random. Sometimes they're linked, sometimes they're not. Gareth, obviously, you came on and we looked at the uh, TV comic Dalek strips. And it's just, it's me and my brother Jack do it mainly, but we do have guests on from time to time. And um, just talking about the things we love that perhaps some people and some fans haven't experienced before. Just just made a note of that so I can add it to my list of podcasts I haven't heard, which I will have a listen to. (laughs) There are many, there are so many Doctor Who podcasts. There are, there are, but not just Doctor Who, of course, as we're in fact doing now, aren't we? Yeah, that's that's it. I mean, when I was deciding to do a podcast, that's one of the things I thought. I thought there's so many Doctor Who ones out there already that um, I'll do a podcast about some of the lesser known shows that don't get yeah, as, yeah. as much coverage. Although Doctor Who kind of runs through British television, like sort of DNA. <laughs> well, I was, uh, the time has just flown. Uh, this has been absolutely brilliant. Uh, thank you very much, Dylan and Steve, for taking part in today's episode. Thank you so much for having me on board. Um, yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. We've both fantastic. done our research, hadn't we? That's the thing. We've both done <laughs> yeah, it with the three of us. Had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, mm. But it, it was it was great fun to revisit the series. It, I don't need an excuse to revisit it, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, it was great fun to revisit. And- thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Very British Futures hosted by Gareth Preston and featuring guests Dylan Rees and Steve Hatcher. Music by Chattery Art. Follow us on Twitter at FuturesVery. And for more reviews and information, visit GarethPreston.blog. Downtime, The Lost Years of Doctor Who by Dylan Rees is available from Telus Publishing. For more information on the Derby Hoovers, that's W-H-O-O-V-E-R-S, visit their Facebook page or their website, hoovers.org.uk. Next time, Kinvig.